Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking with Britain Janet Walker, who for nearly 25 years volunteered for the NGO Dolphin Watch and educated visitors about the Chinese white dolphin. Janet is moving with her family to Japan and I spoke to her after her last boat trip, spotting pink dolphins up by the airport. But first, Jonathan Douglas, MBE, was with RTHK for 30 years, using his experience of classical music on Radio 4. He battled cancer for four years and died in the UK last month. An accomplished piano player and actor, Jonathan had a soft voice and unassuming nature, which made him a great interviewer of conductors, local and international musicians and politicians. After retiring from RTHK, he took a master's in acting, although he had already performed in numerous productions both here and in England. Even in his last weeks, he put aside his physical pain as he played the piano for his two sons who sing and play guitar. This is a segment from an earlier Hong Kong heritage where Jonathan talks about his love of music and how he came to work for Radio 4. As a boy, he wanted to be an actor or rock star, but teaching was seen as a much more sensible occupation. At the age of 23, he spent a year in Singapore and was off to teach in Japan when he stopped off in Hong Kong. My first time I viewed Hong Kong Island from the Chim Sa Che Ferry, I couldn't believe anything like that existed in the world. I thought, oh gosh, I must be on Mars or something. And then I, I, I remember strolling to Chim Sa Che East and just by chance walking into the lobby of the Shangri-La Hotel and just inquiring about whether they happened to need a pianist. And it just so happened they were opening a cocktail lounge <laughs> on the top floor. It was called the Tiara Lounge. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, yeah, actually, yeah, we are. And then uh, this big, burly German food and beverage manager guy, he came down. He took me up there up to this place. And he asked me to play him a few tunes. And I did. And, and, and he offered me a job. And what sort of tunes did you have to play? I had done a bit of this kind of work in London, playing in cocktail lounges and, and, and hotels. I mean, I suppose I played things like As Time Goes By and, and Misty and this kind of thing, and probably and a few of my own little sort of versions of tunes by Simon Garfunkel and Beatles, that sort of thing. My interest in music is in different areas. So I can play this kind of music play in, in hotels. I was also deeply, deeply and passionately interested in classical music. Some people thought at the time was very surprising. And I was also deeply, passionately into basically rock music. Like? When I was very, very tiny, it was pretty much coincided with the Beatles era. So as a like a toddler and a, and a and a very young kid, I couldn't not help but be listening to the to, the, to these Beatles hits. Which, when you're there at the time, it 
gosh, it stays with you. That you can't, it's difficult for anybody who didn't experience that to imagine what it was like to be at that. If so, it was a very heady time. Even though I was so young, it totally dominated British life, the, the Beatles music, and to some extent, the Rolling Stones music. And then this whole in- incredible era of British pop music that it triggered... And so that this was what I was listening to all the time. I had an older brother, so he was he was introducing me. You may have only been about two or three, but he was force feeding me <laughs> Beatles and hits and things. So I was listening to that all the time, and then I of course I, I just got into whatever happened next. There was the sixties, which was the Kinks, and and then uh, there was Bob Dylan and so on, and from and all the American stuff as well. And then and then of course there was the other the sort of flower power era, and the, and music got heavier, the Cream. And I just sort of discovered Eric Clapton, and then, and then Led Zeppelin started in the late sixties. So I really got into Led Zeppelin, and then all these sort of mega bands like, like Yes, and King Crimson. Do you remember, some of the people of my own age would remember that, those sort of bands, King Crimson. Then uh, moving into the to the seventies, you, you had things like David Bowie and Queen. So th- this was the mu- this was really, really the music that informed me as a in terms of my interest in rock music. So I kind of played this music. I, I got into the school band at secondary school immediately because I played the keyboards and, I, and it was kind of folk rock, I suppose. It was we kind of hippie-ish folk rock. Well, I was very young when I gravitated towards the piano and I learnt to play by ear and uh, I learnt to sort of improvise a little bit and play blues and got the hang of uh, keys. When I got to my secondary school, the cool kind of number one rock band at the school that the, the people discovered, I played keyboards. So they recruited me, which is very, very cool because I was only 14 and they were sort of 17 and 18. It was slightly folky, but more rocky with with the emphasis on this lead guitar, you know. And it was, and, and, and very much playing original music, of course. So actually pretty good. I rather regret not trying to keep keep going with that band. I fell out with a lead guitarist, I remember. Which is <laughs> unfortunate. Clash of egos, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that was the rock side. The, the classical side was, uh, I just, when I was really quite young, about seven or so, I happened to overhear the opening bars of the Bach, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3, which my dad happened to put on in his little mono record player. And it, it immediately blew me away. I, I, you know, I immediately realised that this music, whatever it was, was on a completely different level compared to Led Zeppelin and Cream. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, so I, I, of course, then I asked my parents, what was this music? And they showed me and, you know, I thought, well, who is this Bach? And, oh, he wrote six of these so-called Brandenburg concertos. And so off my own back, so it was totally independent of any teacher or gui- any guidance from any adult. I figured out this guy Bach wrote these Brandenburg concertos and he lived at a certain time in a certain place. And he also wrote masses and oratorio and uh, lots of other concertos and lots of pieces for harpsichord and, and you know, all that sort of thing. <laughs>
then I discovered that there are other <laughs> classical composers, including Mozart and Beethoven. And my mother had an old LP of Mozart overtures, uh, which, again, in their own way, blew me away. But I, rec- I, I realized, well, this, this is music of a similar substance and significance, but it's a different style compared to the Brach Bandenberg concertos. And then I thought, oh, I discovered, well, Mozart was living in a different era, and that, that, that kind of music had developed. And then, then I discovered Beethoven and listened to his pastoral symphony, and then, oh, I discovered he, he wrote nine of these things called symphonies <laughs> and I got into my own little world classical music world listening to more and more and more classical music and going to concerts usually on my own because nobody else wanted to go to classical and at that time you could for next to nothing you could sit in the gallery of the Royal Albert Hall listen to great orchestras play great music I and mean, I used to do that from when I was about 13 14 15 just go there on my own. And my obsession with classical music, of course, put me in good stead for when I came to Hong Kong. Not that I was intending to look for a job in radio or classical music radio, but... So you go from playing piano in a hotel. Yeah. How did you then come to Radio 4? This this, uh, this piano playing thing, because it was obviously being a British colony, it was very easy for British people in terms of working. There was no need for work visas. I was offered this job playing the piano for three months initially. And so when that came up... And they offered me another six months playing piano. And the, the offer in Japan was still open. And that was a huge decision, actually. What was the offer in Japan? Oh, it was, it was to be a teacher at the British Council. And it was, a bit, it was a huge decision whether or not to go to Japan and, you know, begin a completely different kind of life there or to stay in Hong Kong. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I took up this extra six months playing piano in Shangri-La. And it was during that time that... I kind of discovered that there was a local radio. I got into the habit of listening to the Hong Kong RTHK as it happened every morning and so on. And, dis- and I discovered, obviously, Radio 3, and then re- that there was this Radio 4, which had classical music. And I thought, I know a lot about classical music. I've got a handle on the core repertoire of classical music. Of course, I've done a lot of acting, so I guess I kind of know how to use my voice. And and so I, I think I wrote a hand... I actually wrote a handwritten letter. I'm, I think I might have even written it in pencil <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, to nobody in particular. It never occurred to me that, that anything would come of it. But I got a, I got a call from uh, this this fellow called Clive Simpson, who he, he invited me in to have a, a voice test. I have to say, this is the, this is the kind of thing that would only happen in Hong Kong, I think, in that time. I mean, it's inconceivable that anything would happen like that at the BBC, I, I think. So what were the programmes that you were working on when you first started there? I think the approach then was, was very different. It was more that you had some guy doing the continuity. The people, people were thinking more in terms of shifts, live shifts. There were fewer recorded programmes... And it was actually modelled more on the kind of traditional BBC World Service kind of style, I would say. But so you would do live interviews with people coming in or people staging shows here? Well, interviews were things which Clive, in fact, was doing on his arts magazine programme, which which he was... I think he called it serendipity. But live interviews on Radio 4 were not very common until I introduced them in particularly my the, mor- the morning program Good Morning on Four 
In those days, one thing about Radio 4 was that the, was that the Radio 4 presenters read the news. So one of the things that I had to learn how to do was read the news. And then when they started getting me on the early morning program, it was very early. I had to be there by sort of 10 to 6 because it, it, everything began at 6. And the first thing I had to do was read a news bulletin at 6 o'clock. It was a 15-minute news bulletin, so you had to have your wits about you, <laughs> um, especially for, for me. And I, I have to say I was a bit... I was a bit off the rails in those days. You know, my, my, my kind of aspiring rock star mentality had not left me. <laughs> I, I was, you know, a bit, I was a bit long-haired and bohemian and up to all sorts of naughty things. So it was called Good Morning on uh, Good Morning on Four in those days. Actually, I, I, in those days, you arrived at, uh, before six, read the news bulletin, and then there was a sort of light music program, which you presented in a more appropriate way for light music. And that light music program was for both Radio 3 and Radio 4. And then at seven o'clock, there was a news summary, which you read. That's when the classical music, I mean, that's when Good Morning on Four started uh, at the seven o'clock. Um, and, and what sort of program was it? It was it was just you just introduced bits and pieces of classical music. That's all it was, and and they tended to be short pieces, so they could be movements from things which you thought people might like to listen to at that hour in the morning. And it was maybe movements from string quartets or, or overtures, and you had to be a bit chatty and and say interesting and engaging things to make people interested in listening to the music. And that was the kind of skill of course you had to learn how to do but i think at that stage there wasn't even bilingual present presentation and there certainly wasn't you know interviews or kind of pre-prepared features so i carried on doing it and then it, for some reason i changed its name to morning call and the radio four people didn't read the news anymore radio four became well for a start it became more even-handed in terms of westerns westerners and local chinese staff let me think. It was probably fairly 50-50 in those days when I, when I arrived. Douglas Gautier, who had just recently become head of Radio 4, was trying to in introduce more Cantonese language presentation and bilingual presentation. Now tell me about you know, some of the... Because you, you did, as you say, you introduced the idea of live interviews. Yeah. So um, I know there will have been many, but could you highlight some? I, I suppose I cannot help but say that the one of the most uh, memorable interviews one of the most memorable meetings was with Isaac Stern violinist because the, ho the whole the whole event went beyond just the interview it was just a slightly bizarre and uh, slightly wonderful encounter I remember he was staying at the, at the Peninsula Hotel and I arrived at his suite obviously he had the, the biggest most important room in the hotel and the door was ajar and so I knocked on the door and you know, rang the bell, and I, I heard this voice and this American accent, sort of saying, "It's open," which was weird. <laughs> it was Isaac Stern, you know, and he was on the phone or something, and so I just walked in, and he put, he was on the phone. He put his hand on the receiver and said, and he just invited me to make myself at home at the at the table, which was all prepared for breakfast, everything, you know croissant goodness knows what coffee and so he was especially waiting for me to have breakfast with him and um, and then we had breakfast together and we just chatted and he was one of the most urbane and interesting and impressive people i've ever met without any doubt i mean he was talking talking about huge huge issues in a in a very everyday approachable manner 
not just music, but about you know religious extremism and 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 politics and and his family and also personal things. And so that interview must have been in the mid nineties, I suppose. Jonathan Douglas there, who died last month. That segment is from an earlier interview with Jonathan, and you can hear more about his interviews, music and acting in two programme links that I've posted on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page. Rest in peace, Jonathan. In the second half of today's programme, I'm talking with Janet Walker, who, for nearly 25 years, took visitors on the Dolphin Watch boat, where you can pay to come aboard for two and a half to three hours and hopefully spot a few Chinese white dolphins out in the waters around North Lantau. This is my 25th year, so it would have been September 97 when I joined, just through answering an ad in the uh, newspaper and uh, speaking the languages that were needed at the time. So you're off to Japan? I am, which is where I lived before I came to Hong Kong, and the ad I saw in the paper back in the day said, ecotourism company needing English and Japanese speaker for tour guide duties. And I'd always been you know, paid my subs for Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, etc. And I'd always been interested in those issues, but never thought that speaking Japanese would lead to that sort of job. I'm managing to catch you just a couple of days before you leave. So tell me, when you first started off looking at the Chinese white dolphin or the, the pink dolphin, as they're also known, who were you working for? And uh, also, can you tell me about those first experiences? Well, Bill Leverett, who started it, was working for Friends of the Earth originally, and he did a trip with them and went, oh, why is nobody trying to raise awareness? Did all this research, due diligence, started Dolphin Watch. Uh, they were getting lots of Japanese tourists, so I went out uh, for a sort of job interview, come do you get seasick test? <laughs> and on that very first trip, they spotted a dead dolphin oh. washed up on a shore somewhere bit past where Disneyland Sunny Bay, which wasn't called Sunny Bay back then. It was called Yamo. If you look on any 90s maps, you won't see Sunny Bay. So they got the little uh, boat off the back of the big boat and rowed over and took pictures. And I was a bit, oh, OK, this is going to be a fun job. And I knew the dolphins existed because they'd been the mascot for the handover. And I've said this many times, I think a lot of people thought they were just a sort of Hello Kitty type mascot that the government dreamed up. But I didn't know much about them. So it was quite shocking to learn everything about them the you know the pollution the land reclamation etc but i jumped in with both feet and i'm just about still here i've had my last trip now though with the chinese white dolphin or the pink dolphins it's interesting to see that uh, in fact 
the pandemic, you're, you're, these issues of pollution, as you say, and also the ferries to Macau. In fact, the pandemic in other areas of the world as well, nature is managing to have one of the winds, really, isn't it? It's, yes, the lack of boat traffic, as WWF have been saying recently, the lack of boat traffic, especially the Southland town population, where the porpoises also are, has helped a lot. Just, you know, no vessel strikes, just much calmer waters, dolphins are able to relax a bit. In the long term, I guess all that will eventually come back. I'm sure someday you'll all be able to go to Macau. I do worry about the pollution because so much plastic has been created, you know, millions of masks every day all the testing kits all the takeaway food the stuff coming out of the quarantine hotels that can't be recycled etc i think in the long run that's all just it must be adding up and the work on the third runway went ahead which is right in the middle of dolphin habitat although obviously they've been not seen there much the last few years there's a lot gone on that's sort of been pushed to the background and if we ever get out of this um, it will all just kick off again but at least it's been nice the last couple of years they've had a break from all the traffic. Yes so they've had a chance to increase their numbers again if we give a context to that a couple of years ago I think the Chinese white dolphin in these waters numbered about 32 and there was a sharp sharp decline in in recent years and so those population numbers as I understand it have increased by 60 percent but even that so we're, we're not uh, we're still shy of 100 but tell me a little bit more you know when you were part of dolphin watch you would see these dolphins so you you would have learned in order to be the guide you would have learned all about breeding patterns and so tell me a little bit about that so you can educate us well for example my penultimate trip two weeks ago we saw the tiniest cutest little baby calf uh, baby dolphin and we know partly because they were surrounded by other adult dolphins but you know coming fairly close to our boat we know that dolphin was um, only a few days old or a couple of weeks maybe which kind of goes along with the pattern the peak calving season would be springtime but then in the summer you always find a handful of dead babies because they've been slowly poisoned basically by the mother's milk which is full of years and years of toxins that they've been ingesting so in the summer we've always kept an eye out for little babies or spring early summer and then later in the summer you kind of worry so i just had to kind of say to that poor little calf you know live a long happy life kind of thing and he must be you know the grandchild or great grandchild of dolphins I, I knew 20 years ago you know it's about two to one for human years so if I've been doing this 25 years ago a dolphin who would have been born around then would actually be lucky to be still be alive in Hong Kong because if they get into their 20s they're doing pretty well yeah I was going to say what is a, a natural lifespan for a dolphin it, it should be about 30 or 40 years in ideal conditions. The oldest ones found washed up in Hong Kong, as far as we can tell, if they're not too far decomposed, are 32, 33 years old, which they know from their teeth, actually. Firstborns have a very high death rate because of the pollution from the mother's milk. And if they get into middle age, sort of into their 20s, they're actually doing pretty well. So when a body is found and it's taken to the lab at Ocean Park, they will measure it. If it's a full-grown adult, then you have to look at the teeth and see what else you can figure out. If they're too far decomposed, you can't necessarily tell what has killed them. And with the babies, obviously, you can just measure them and you can get a good idea, if, if they're not a fully-grown adult, um, how old they would have been when they uh, passed on. So you're saying that a natural lifespan can be into their 30s and 40s? 
when you've actually been out there on the boat and, a, and on a day when, I mean, I remember one of the most uplifting experiences I had was two dolphins. Actually, we saw them flip and then go right under the boat and come up on the other side and then, and then through the blowholes. And it was just, when you're that, I mean, it's amazingly quite exhilarating and, and emotional, actually, yeah. to be yeah. that, that, that close with them. Um, so tell me about some of those experiences over the years. Oh, gosh. Honestly, seeing the baby a couple of weeks ago was, was just amazing, and especially knowing it was my next-to-last trip. And we always go out hoping that they'll be leaping out of the water and doing tricks. I have once seen dolphins tail-walking, which is quite amazing. <laughs> we, myself and the other guide went, did you just see that? Oh, oh, oh. We were very excited by that. Um, so describe that. If you train them in an aquarium and withhold their food till they do it right, then you can get them to tail walk, which is where they're literally standing upright with their beak, their nose up in the air, um, and they sort of waggle their fins on the tail and, and try and walk like humans, which was amazing. And um, it's not something you would normally see. So when you see it in an aquarium, it's you know not the most natural behavior, really. Just dolphins leaping around and playing together. And also it's quite entertaining when they get a, a fish because they basically use their sharp pointy teeth to grab hold of the fish and then they swallow it whole, which is why we don't swim with captive dolphins, kids, because they have sharp pointy teeth <laughs> and lots of other reasons too. Uh, but sometimes they'll toss it up in the air and catch it and, you know, play catch with it. They can be very entertaining. So yeah. Dol Dolphin Watch, you, you basically, for you, for 25 years and uh, your colleagues, you take people out in a boat up yeah. by Tung Chung's type area yeah. Yeah. and it's for about three hours? Yes, two and a half, three hours, obviously, if the dolphins are amazing and we don't want to leave them or if it takes ages to find them or if it's freezing cold in the winter we can be a bit flexible we start by bus from Chim Sa Choi get everybody to Tung Chung obviously if they live over there they can meet us at the pier so on the bus we'll talk about the dolphins and all the threats and what to look out for our uh, success rate still hovers around 97 percent which is amazing given the decrease in the dolphins so the, when they're babies they're gray aren't they yes gray or i mean the newborn we saw was was basically black and then as they get older they lose their pigmentation which is another way of guessing roughly how old a young one might be from the color so why um, are they pink aha uh -huh. Chinese white dolphins, um, and then they lose the pigmentation. And they've been here hundreds of years, so, you know, we know it's a natural thing. Sometimes kids ask if they're, it's pollution or if they're radioactive. But Explorer's Diaries in 16-something said uh, ghostly pink dolphins, etc. Oh, yeah. We think because the Pearl River Delta, where they live, because these are estuarine dolphins, it's kind of murky even before all the land reclamation. Maybe they're living in the dark. So, you know, if you live in a cave, you might be paler from the lack of sunlight. Maybe that's why they're losing the pigment. But also, there's no sharks around that side of Hong Kong. Maybe they don't need camouflage. It's just theories. So you get Chinese white dolphins. And then when they're swimming around and the blood's pumping, like me running from my bus in the morning, they'll look much pinker. And how often is mating season? It can be any time of the year, but the peak is spring season. The uh, gestation period for a pregnancy is about 365 days, they tell us. So both mating season and calving season peak in springtime, but it could be year-round. Yeah, and then they're born tail first. How intelligent is a Chinese white dolphin? Dolphins generally are, are very intelligent. They communicate. 
I don't know what language hours speak because they're, you know, in the delta, up and down. Um, they communicate with <laughs> But it's so, it's sonar, isn't it? Be... Yeah, it is. It's, it's sonar, <laughs> yes. And I'm sure they could speak to dolphins all over the world. They use their sonar um, to communicate, to track their prey. They'll send out their little clicks and squeaks and they can tell if what's floating by is a fish or an old shoe, if it's hollow, if it's solid. So a lot of research has gone. Ironically, some of the research obviously comes from captive dolphins, but lots and lots of research has gone into dolphins over the years because they are clearly pretty intelligent creatures, probably more than ourselves. If people would like to go on a, a dolphin watch tour, where do they need to go? Uh, they can either... We're, we're working in collaboration with Hong Kong Greeters, who are a local uh, tour agency as well, because they're hurting and they're very much in the same kind of mindset as we are. So they can either go through hkdolphinwatch.com or through Hong Kong Greeters. Um, it'll be the same price whichever way you do it. And uh, yeah, come out on a Sunday morning. You'll be back in time for some dim sum at lunchtime mm -hmm. and uh, give the dolphins my love. <laughs> my thanks to Janet Walker talking there on her work with Dolphin Watch. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>